And so I knew going into it, there was a chance that she would not stay our dog Mm -hmm. long term. Mm -hmm. And I was prepared for that. And I was prepared that if, you know, this didn't work out, I was hopeful because again, I grew up in a multi-animal household and we had had animals that didn't love each other, but we had always been able to get them to coexist, right? And that's really, I don't need them to be best friends. I need them to coexist. Hello, you cat and dog people. This is It's Training Cats and Dogs. I'm Naomi Rotenberg, a certified professional trainer who specializes in helping cats and dogs get along. And this is the show for pet professionals and pet parents who want to level up their cat and dog coexistence skills. In each episode, we talk nerdy about how to get your pets or your clients' pets living safer and happier lives together. What specific behaviors should you be looking for when introducing two animals? Or if they're already having issues being together, how do you know when to move on to the next step in your coexistence plan? What are potential red flags that tell you to slow down? In today's chat with fellow pet professional Sammy Hyde, we talk all about her blind cat Murdoch, who is the self-professed king of the household. We broke down the ways that Murdoch made it clear that he did not want to live with another cat, and how things progressed differently when new puppy Freya came into the home. And we let our behavior nerd flags fly with our impassioned discussion of ethograms, and what they are, and why they're important. Anyway, let's hop into my conversation with Sammy. Hi, Sammy. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into your stories about your pets, their behavior, how you integrated them, all of that fun stuff, let's do a little quick icebreaker so that we can all get to know you a little bit as a human. So longtime listeners to the show know that I, for some reasons, love to do two truths and a lie for my guests, even though I'm not so great at it. So let's do that. Are you ready to tell me two truths and a lie about yourself? And I will hopefully be able to figure out what the lie is. I am ready. (laughs) Okay. Hit me. All right. So the first is I have been playing piano since I was eight years old, but I cannot sight read. The second is I am an avid runner and I've completed five marathons in the last five years. And the last one, I enjoy training, agility, nose work, rally obedience at home, but I have never competed in a single dog sports trial. Uh, let's see. So here's my logic that I'm going to say out loud in case this is relevant for anything. So very specific, eight years, can't sight read. I get that. And marathons. You look like you're in shape. I'll allow it. Thank um, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's, for the sake of the storytelling, say that the lie is that you, uh, mm, no, I think, ah, this is so hard. Okay. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't look to see if you have any titles on your dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Okay. Um, yeah, let's say the marathons is the lie. You are correct. <laughs> <gasps> okay. Woo. That was tough. That was, that was, that I had a, some heart palpitations going on there. Okay. So <laughs> do you run at all? 
I do. I, I I do. I'm not fast. Um, it's not necessarily my favorite type of exercise. The longest race I've done is a half marathon, and I've only done it once. <laughs> that is still great. I can run 100 feet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if a bear was chasing me, maybe 200. I mean, that's functional running. That's what you need, right? <laughs> What's the joke? You just have to run faster. Outrun than the, the slowest person. <laughs> <laughs> so you like to do all of the training stuff, but haven't done any dog sport trials or anything. That sounds very similar to me. Have you ever thought about doing dog sport stuff and you just are like, I'm not ready? Or are you just like, nope, not, not for me? I really am interested and I really would like to trial. Um, my current dog, Freya, is the one that I do all the training with. She's the one who really got me interested in sports, but I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about her history. She has arousal issues and a trial environment is just going to be too stressful for her. And while it's something that I would love to do, I'm not willing to put her in a really uncomfortable place just mm -hmm. so we can do something that I like. I know I'll have lots of dogs in my life and I'm sure that some of them will be interested in doing the sports with me. And those guys, we can do that. But with Freya, I, I just will not do it because I know it's going to be really stressful for her. And you get all of the benefits of doing the training and the enrichment and all of that stuff without having to do actual ring prep and all of that. Yeah, and there's lots of fun virtual titles you can do. She has a trick dog title from Do More With Your Dog. And I actually, I need to submit her other videos for it, <laughs> for the other levels. But yeah, you can do a lot of training at home by yourself. And if you really want to do titles, there's also virtual titling for your dogs. Yeah, that's cool. I haven't thought about doing that. Um, my guy's old. So, you know, maybe when my kids grow up and I decide to delve into the puppy thing, then <laughs> we'll see how that goes. And music, you have a guitar behind you. Do you perform or is this just a hobby thing? No, I just, when I was a kid, I took piano lessons and I took it for many years and I have a piano downstairs as well. I like playing music, the whole sight reading thing. Um, I just learned to memorize the stuff that I had to perform for recitals. Sight reading is really hard for me. And I think it is because I have ADHD. I really think that that contributes to how difficult it was. And very quickly, I learned that I could easily memorize it. Mm -hmm. So I never put in the work to improve my sight reading. <laughs> you have a different coping mechanism to yep. reach the same goal. So And it's functional and it works, right? Yep, so exactly. I have no motivation to change my behavior. <laughs> Yay, behavior mod theory in <laughs> yeah. life. I love it. I was a singer. But I dabbled in different instruments. My daughter actually just brought out my guitar today, this morning. Um, and she's like, mommy, play it. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, strum. <laughs> I bet she was impressed anyways. They're like, every time my cousins bring their kids over, they're so interested in the piano. And they think that just any noise coming out of it is beautiful to them. <laughs> My husband plays jazz piano, but that's a skill that I just admire from afar. All the improv aspects of it, you know, it's so different from classical. Anyway, we digress. This is a this is a dog and cat podcast, everybody. Let's let's remember that. <laughs> um, 
Sammy's just so cool. It has a cool life. Okay, so we talked about Freya a little bit. Tell me about her and you have a cat and kind of who they are as individuals and how they came to be living in your house. Yeah, so I think we'll start with Murdoch because he came first. He is the king of this household. Murdoch is about six or seven now. My husband and I had just purchased our first home. And of course, now that we had some extra space, we weren't living in a tiny apartment in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, The first thing I wanted to do was get a cat because I grew up with cats. I grew up in a multi-cat household. I was never without a cat growing up. So... I was looking at local rescues and I saw a picture of this cat who had no eyes. His eyes are sutured closed. So it just looks like he's squinting or that like he's asleep all the time. (laughs) And I saw a picture of him and I think there was a video too. And I just thought he was the coolest, most gorgeous cat. And I texted my husband. I was like, how do you feel about adopting a blind cat? And I believe his answer was, not great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Doing it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So we met him. And um, his story is really interesting because he was born in Tehran, Iran. And he was found as a little baby kitten by himself as a stray. When they found him, there was clearly something wrong with his eyes. Um, Probably the best guess is that his mom was a stray that rejected him at birth because of whatever was going on with his eyes, or he might have been abandoned because of having something wrong with his eyes. So the woman who found him, she was there visiting family, brought him back to the United States. And when he was old enough, they did surgery because his eyes were incredibly infected and they realized very early after treatment that they weren't going to be able to save them. So they did surgery to remove the tissue and close the lids. And during that time, the surgeon, I guess, discovered that he was almost certainly blind since birth because the eyes never actually developed. That's likely why they got infected is because the tissue was underdeveloped. So he basically had like little nubbins, no real eyes. He couldn't see So I think it was probably about six or eight months when they did the surgery. Then his foster mom put him up for adoption after he had healed. He was about a year old. And that's when we adopted him and we brought him into our life. So we will definitely talk about having (laughs) a cat with an interesting behavioral history at being a singleton, Mm -hmm. being transported, and then having the blindness on top of that. So how did he acclimate into his new life, his new space. It was very interesting. Like I said, I grew up with cats and we've always been a multi-cat household. When I was a kid, for the most part, we always had at least two cats. There were times when we had three and having had multiple cats in my life and knowing a little bit about cat behavior, not as much as dogs, but when we brought him home, we started him off in his own room where he had all the resource he needed. He had lots of hidey places, little cat hidey holes. We had lots of elevated surfaces for him to climb on. And usually the recommendation when you bring home a cat is to start them in a comfortable, safe, quiet space where they can adjust. And then you gradually can build their world to extend to other rooms in the rest of your home as they get comfortable and they want to explore. Mm -hmm. Within 30 minutes of having Murdoch home, we had to open the door and let him out of his safe space because he was just 
banging on the wall. He would put his paws underneath the door and like shake the door, like trying to open it. He did not want to be confined. So we went, okay, let's just open the door. If he wants to go explore, if it's making him uncomfortable to be in a small space, let's just do it. And we just watched him walk around the house for about two hours, just exploring every nook and cranny. When he moves, it's really interesting. You can see he usually keeps his tail low and it kind of sweeps back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, His whiskers are almost always pushed as far forward as they can go. And he explored the house for like two hours. Then he jumped up on the couch next to us and fell asleep. And (laughs) that was it. He just had full run of the house from the get-go. He made himself very comfortable very quickly. (laughs) So... That worked because he was the only animal in the house, right? Yes, yes. He was the only animal in the house at that time. (laughs) So let's go down a hypothetical route. If he was coming into your house where there was already another cat or dog, what would we have done? Yeah, so the rescue that adopted him out thought that because he was blind, he might do well with another cat. Mm -hmm. So we did when he first came home for the first year that we had him, we did during that time have a second cat um, who we realized (laughs) uh, shortly after having them both in the house that he didn't actually want a cat friend (laughs) and it wasn't going to be good. We tried for a year, over a year to acclimate them to each other, but it didn't end up working out, but that's okay because my house is just like the, I think, what does my dad call it? My, my parents call our house, the uh, land of misfit animals. (laughs) Uh, She was partially deaf. (laughs) We didn't find that out until about four months of having her. We realized we're like, we keep startling this cat really easily we need to have her checked out by the vet. I think she has hearing issues. So she was partially deaf. She ended up going to a home with an owner who was actually partially deaf. It felt like, like that was her home was Mm -hmm. supposed to be her home. But when we had them at the same time, what we did is they both had their own spaces and we let them both get used to just the idea of there is another animal in this household. I don't have to see them, which obviously isn't a problem for Murdoch, but for the <laughs> other cat, Electra, we called her L, that she doesn't have to see him. They can smell each other. They can hear each other. Well, she couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> not well, not well. <laughs> and so we kept them in separate places. We did site swapping, which mm-hmm. is where we would exchange who was in whose room so that they could then smell each other's faces. And then we went from a door to a gate. And that's where we were stuck for over a year that they could not learn to coexist, even with just a gate between them. But that's usually, especially with cats and we'll talk a little bit about how i introduced him to a dog freya but if i am bringing home a cat and i already have a cat that is usually what i recommend and that's what we did with them again the problem being that with these two i think something we can probably talk about as well is that cats talk a lot with their bodies Mm -hmm. they really communicate through body language murdoch is at a significant disadvantage that he can't see Mm -hmm. he's also always been blind so it's not like he has any idea of how to (laughs) communicate with his body he doesn't even know that that's necessarily a thing if it comes naturally it doesn't matter he can't he can't see the other cat and then the other disadvantage being that as you said he's a singleton he Mm -hmm. was 
who knows when he was very young when they found him so if he had any time with his litter mates it was quite limited mm -hmm. and when he was in his foster home there were other cats but he had to be isolated from them because he was recovering from surgery mm -hmm. so he never really had that socialization but yeah that's what we did with those two and that's usually my recommendation is give them both a space and then go slow because cats they have incredible hearing except for electra um they have an incredible sense of smell your cat's not dumb they know there's another cat in the house mm -hmm. and especially when the cat that you're bringing home let them get used to the new environment first being in a new home let them get used to you spend time with them before we start introducing and especially like visually not just a closed door using something like a gate which physically blocks them but they can visually see each other for the cats who can see <laughs> <laughs> so what were the behaviors that you saw in the two of them that made you eventually call it and say she needs to go somewhere else oh it was if they got close to each other at the gate it was hissing mm -hmm. and it was in trying to bat each other claws out it was not playful there was very stiff posture you would see their tails flicking mm -hmm. um sometimes people i think especially as a dog trainer i see clients who also have cats cats and dog behavior is very very different <laughs> and a wagging tail for a dog can be happy but not always but a quote-unquote wagging tail from a cat is not happy <laughs> no nope. that is not a happy tale and the intensity of those interactions got more intense not less intense mm -hmm. got it it was not going yeah. in the correct direction yeah and then even worse was that murdoch would actually try to climb the gate to get to the other side we did uh co-feeding on either side so basically trying to pair their first interactions with each other with something positive. We fed them on other sides of the gate and not like dishes on each side of the gate super close. We fed them each about four feet away from the gate, but mm -hmm. had them both eat a meal. And we tried that for the first week that we had just the, the physical gate between them and neither of them would eat. Neither of them could eat in the presence of each other. Electra was interested in trying to stay away from the gate but if Murdoch came up and he would come right up and try to climb it, try to get into her space, try to get through it. If he started reaching through it, right, he can't see her. He's trying to reach in and see if there's an opening. She would come over and that's when there would be a lot of hissing, a lot of spatting and a lot of whacking the crap out of each other. <laughs> <laughs> and we always interrupted it, but it would happen incredibly quickly. So that was really when we we took it back several more notches and we tried, like I said, for a year. Cats, it can be a slow process. And so we gave it a year. And at that point we decided that, you know, they had to be separated from each other at all times. And they are both social cats, both of them very, very social. Towards humans. Yes, towards humans, <laughs> that is good. Very specifically towards humans and not towards other cats. And so that's when we decided that we would, we would rehome her. Okay, so after this situation where Murdoch did super duper well with another animal, you said, let's, yeah. bring, let's bring in a dog. Uh, tell me about, <laughs> tell me about how, how Freya came to live with you. Yeah, so um, 
Freya came into our life kind of against my better judgment, I guess. So I've worked in rescue for a couple of years and my husband and I had been talking about getting a dog. I had been wanting an adult dog. We, you know, we're starting to talk about it. And I was talking to some of my friends who work in rescue. And I was like, hey, if you have an adult dog come through the shelter or through your rescue who has experience living with a cat, um, then let me know I'd be interested. And a couple months after we had really decided we want to try and integrate a dog into the household, a friend told me about a litter of puppies who were coming to be fostered in Massachusetts where we live. And she said, hey, we have some puppies coming. They were conceived and whelped in an animal control facility. They were separated from their mom at about five weeks old. Do you want one? And I said, no, <laughs> who, who would want that? And because she knew these dogs were coming to foster, she had reached out because she was hoping to get some experience home for these puppies because they didn't have the best start to life. Maternal stress and a stressful yeah. environment and early. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. They were conceived. Hold on. Hold on. Going back. They were oh, yeah. conceived at the animal shelter? Yeah. That was my first issue. I was like, I'm sorry. Uh, What happened? Uh <laughs> The, the story that was told to me is that mom had been picked up from an hoarding case and the animals were all being held in animal control facility while the state tried to gain custody. So because the state didn't have custody, I guess they weren't allowed to spay her. And at some point, I guess she was accidentally put into an area with an intact male <laughs> and got pregnant. And somehow they didn't know until she had the puppies. That is the story that was told to me. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. It's a feel-good story. They separated them. They were in groups of two in foster. And so Freya was being fostered with her litter mate. And I told my husband about her. And he was like, well, why don't we just go meet her? Like, it's, let's just go meet her. Uh, so we did. And there was no big red flags. I mean, she was seven weeks old. She was less than seven weeks old. She was like six and a half or something when we met her. Uh, You can't tell a dog's adult temperament at that age. But there was nothing like when I met her in person, that was a big red flag. But still that early, her first two months, essentially on planet Earth had not been great. Mm -hmm. And knowing what I know, I was really not interested in what I foresaw as being a very big project. But on the drive home from meeting her, my husband said, well, if we don't take her, what about if she ends up in a home and they're not prepared to handle behavior issues. He's like, our home is the best place you could be. Imagine what happens if that poor little puppy, that cute puppy you just met, imagine if she ends up in the wrong home. And so we agreed to adopt her. And I am... <laughs> yes. Oh, man. <laughs> and I'm very, very glad that he pushed me because I can't imagine my life without her. She is truly my heart dog. Mm-hmm. Um, So it all turned out good in the end. So she ended up coming home to us at about seven weeks old. Okay. So you have a blind cat who is sassy towards Mm -hmm. other (laughs) other animals in your experience. You don't know about dogs. And then you have a, let's call it behaviorally at risk puppy coming in. And the cat cannot read 
dog body language because he's blind and the dog (laughs) doesn't know about cat body language because she's been in a desolate socialization experience it sounds like a great situation i know (laughs) i'm like i'm just gonna lay it all out there okay all the variables so you being the consummate professional that you were and you already knew that there might be some issues you had a plan Yes. Okay. So I knew Murdoch when he was fostered, had been fostered at home with a couple dogs. Mm -hmm. And according to his foster mom, he had been neutral towards the dogs. He had not shown a ton of interest, but you're right that I had, I I really, I was, I was really scared. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be completely honest. I was really scared. And so I knew going into it, there was a chance that she would not stay our dog Mm -hmm. long-term. And I was prepared for that. And I was prepared that if, you know, this didn't work out, I was hopeful because again, I grew up in a multi-animal household and we had had animals that didn't love each other, but we had always been able to get them to coexist, right? And that's really, I don't need them to be best friends. I need them to coexist. Um, So when we brought her home, we have a room downstairs. That's like our training room. And so that's where she started off. So she had her crate in there, lots of toys. That was her space. And so for the first week she was home, if she wasn't in that room, either taking a nap or I was hanging out in there with her having fun playing doing training she was either there or the backyard so similar to Electra and Murdoch starting them with a closed door I wanted her to get used to me I wanted her to get used to being in a new space get used to a new routine and allow Murdoch to get used to the fact that I can hear an animal behind this door mom smells weird every time she comes out of there um (laughs) And so we did that. And for the first week, he was interested in her door, but he didn't come super close. And so this is where um, I think the most important thing when it comes to animal introductions, but especially if there's a cat involved, is to let the animals tell you when they're ready to take that next step, right? Electra and Murdoch let me know very quickly. They were not ready for the gate. And we went back to a closed door and we went back to reducing stress, providing lots of enrichment, working on slowly building up. Can you just, you know, explore each other's face? All that stuff we talked about. Within a week, Murdoch was interested in her door and he was reaching underneath it and he was meowing and patting around and he would hear her playing and he'd come running to the door And so after about a week, we opened the door and we had a gate there and we allowed Freya to see him. And obviously he can't see her, but there is now just a gate between them. And for about a week and a half, two weeks, um, we just did that. I'd hang out either on Freya's side with her and we'd play and he would stand on the other side of the gate. He was always, you know, listening. You can see him like tilting his head back and forth, his ears going. Mm-hmm. He's lifting his head up and down. Sometimes I, I call it like owling. Mm-hmm. It looks like he's moving his head the way owls do because owls, obviously cats can articulate their ears for hearing, but it kind of looks like he's doing the owl thing, trying to hear by like rotating his head around and bobbing his head. And Freya was a puppy and she was a little interested in him but not that much she had toys she had chews she had humans that's her big thing she loves her humans so when she was interested in murdoch the first thing i did with her training wise and this was probably the biggest thing i did is i taught her when she looks at murdoch that she can look to me and get a treat so she can disengage so anyone who's played like engage disengage look at the thing look back 
or look away from it. You can get reinforced. Anytime he got into his, what we like to call uh, hardcore parkour time, mm-hmm. which is a couple times a day, he will just like start zooming around and bouncing off of his little cat trees and stuff. Uh, we did a lot of engage, disengage with that. Um, so if he starts getting all exciting and zooming around, look at me because I don't want her to chase him. And when he started to be interested in trying to climb the gate and get in with her, and again, this was markedly different than with Electra. With Electra, he threw himself at the gate immediately mm-hmm. and was ready to throw down. Mm-hmm. He was ready to climb that gate and get into her space immediately. He was a lot slower with Freya, mm-hmm. taking in more information. When he wanted to climb the gate, what I started doing is I would have Freya on leash, I would hold her leash, and I would open the gate so he could come in. And at the same time, going through this whole process, we also did things like when she was out in the backyard and we were playing or she was having a potty break, I would leave her room open so he could go in and he could explore it. I remember once I was outside in the backyard and my phone pinged that the puppy cam in her room, there was a motion detection and I knew it must be him. And I opened up the camera. It was just his face really close to the camera. (laughs) He must have heard it, like the making noises. And he was like right up in front of it. Um, so I let her, him explore her space. He's a very curious cat. Anytime before her and since then, when a new dog comes into the house, he usually goes upstairs for like 30 minutes and then he'll come downstairs and be like, actually, I want more information about you. I want to come down and I want to get closer and get more information. So luckily I think with him moved a lot faster than I would expect with a lot of cats, especially with my experience with cats growing up. And so then he would come into the room and I would hold her leash. And again, she was young and she's such a sweet pup and she's very motivated to train. So I would just work on being calm around him. If he would start to race around the room, if he started batting around her toys, just reinforcing her for looking away, not wanting to chase him. And then when they started to really show that they were comfortable in the same room and not super interested in each other, I would let her drag the leash. And this was our life until she was probably about 18 months. There were always gates up. And if they weren't separated by a gate, I would have her drag a leash or she would be tethered. And again, my big concern was I don't want her to chase him because while he has mapped the house really well and he knows his way around in a panicked, stressful moment, I don't want him to run into, I don't want him to run into something. I don't want him to have the added stress of trying to get away from a dog chasing him when he can't see. And again, my goal was always just coexistence. They get along really well. I, I, like I said, I think we got lucky with Freya that she's really from the get go was not overly fixated on him. She wasn't overly interested. Um, Also, I mean, just, while I would never want to get a puppy at seven weeks old again, she was also young and she was able to integrate that. Oh yeah. Cats, cats are things in my world, as opposed to you might get a dog as an adult who has never lived with cats before. And that could be a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. You could be a lot more fixated. When my brother's dog comes to stay with us, he does not live in a cat household. And so I am much more strict with management with him then I have to be with Freya because he is really interested in Murdoch. Mm-hmm. He is always watching him and he's like, <laughs> what is that thing? What is it doing? He will like stare at him. And if you don't separate them, he would follow Murdoch around the house. If you let him, I know he would, but 
He worked on just coexisting and being uninterested in the cat for Freya. So Murdoch being a curious dude, mm-hmm. do you have issues of him kind of bothering Freya? Yes. <laughs> right? Like, I like to think of it, you know, is my dog the asshole or is my cat the asshole? And sometimes it's both, right? Um, yeah. But it sounds like in this type of scenario, right, he's not scared of her. So it's definitely possible that he might be overly solicitous and not be able to see that she is not quite pleased if he's in her space. So like, how does that work? Oh, yeah. So uh, in Who's the Asshole? Um, <laughs> I love Murdoch to death. Um, but it's him. He, <laughs> It is him. Um, <laughs> so um, absolutely. He is the instigator. When he is looking for stimulation, he will often, if Frey is nearby, go to her. And they have certainly played before, but I don't encourage it just because there's such a disadvantage here for him. Mm-hmm. And Freya being a very sweet dog who I would never imagine would want to try to hurt him could easily hurt him. She's 60 pounds right. and he's barely 10 pounds. So <laughs> what we did when she was a puppy, when he would try to bother her and maybe try to instigate and he would want to play with her the way he plays with us, but he plays really rough. Mm-hmm. And I'm not super surprised. He never really had any playmates. Right. No one was ever there to tell him, hey, this is too much. I want to play with you if you play like this. Right. 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 So what we taught Freya is one of the first things she learned as a puppy was a recall. And when he started engaging and he would start batting at her and maybe play biting her again, nothing nothing traumatic he wasn't injuring her but it's a little much we would call her away and reinforce her and we taught her to walk away from him when he was like that and if he was really in a feisty mood we would separate them and eventually freya learned to walk away on her own just because we would always reinforce it he starts to get feisty he starts like kind of chasing her down and batting at her we call her away and usually when she was that age i would have her go into her crate or go on the other side of the gate and enjoy like a Kong or something. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, that is her default. If he starts to get feisty with her, as we say, um, or feral, we usually call it feral <laughs> that she will walk away, but he is, he is the, the one who will instigate. And so it does require it, especially at the beginning, it required a lot of management. So I'm interested because if you had her walk away, that he would accept that or would he follow her? He would accept it. Murdoch has, I I feel like he's such an interesting case study, but obviously case studies are a study of one, right? So you take it with a grain of salt, the behavior you see. But I think he's an interesting case study because he was blind since birth. Growing up with cats, I, and anybody else who has cats probably knows what I'm talking about. You know, when they come to you and you're like playing or you're petting them or you're interacting and they're, they're they seem happy. And then after a few minutes, five minutes or so, whatever the time frame is, they're done with it. And they're either bite you and walk away uh-huh. <laughs> sometimes, or they just get up and run away. Yeah. They're like, okay, that's enough. I'm done. Yeah. Murdoch's default when he gets overstimulated is not to move away. So he, if he is sitting in your lap and you're petting him and he starts to get overstimulated, though he doesn't tend to, he's a very cuddly cat. So usually that's not, it's usually play that he gets the most overstimulated. But when he gets overstimulated, his 
default is to just, for lack of a better word, redirect on the thing closest to him uh, and hope that it goes away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can't know for certain the motivations of his behavior, but he tends to redirect on the closest living thing until it moves away. And then once you move away from him, he gives up. And I don't know if it's just because of his lack of vision or if he just disengages really easily, but he's always been that way with us. If he gets overstimulated, when you walk away, he doesn't pursue you. And so he never did when Freya was a puppy. If he had, it would have been a whole different story that would have required a lot more management. Yeah. It's very common, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not taking no for an answer. Yeah. And the cats being more able to get places than the dog, it's hard to find a place for the dog that's a safe space that's away from the cat. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's much easier to have places where the cat can get away, right? Murdoch, even being blind, can jump over a gate. Mm-hmm. Like, takes him a little bit longer than it would a sighted cat, most likely, but he can jump over a gate. He can climb a cat tree. He loves climbing. Mm -hmm. Oh my, there's, there is now not a single vertical surface in this house he has not found. (laughs) For a long time, there were like two places in the house he hadn't figured out existed yet. One was the mantle above the fireplace. And one was, there's a bookshelf over on this side of me, but he has since learned both of those exist. So you're right that with cats, it's easier for them to move away. Uh, Murdoch has never been one to pursue, again, other than Electra, who he was hell-bent on getting into her room and starting crap. Um, (laughs) If she walks away, he disengages. Lovely. I love when it works out that way. Yes. I think that uh, there's a lot of things worked out well in this situation, which is nice. There were things that did have to be managed, of course. Yeah. So she was 18 months and you kind of said, okay, you know, we're coming towards the end of our adolescence. I can trust them a little bit more. I know what, you know, how to redirect and all of that stuff. So how did you make the choice to just say, you know what? The leash is no longer in our lives. <laughs> that I always get that question of like, how do we know to like to take the next step? Yeah. I knew I was ready to take the next step when I no longer needed that management. Mm-hmm. Like when I was no longer having to use the leash to guide her away or use the gate to separate them, right? Over time, they really did truly learn to coexist. They mostly just both live their own lives and they occasionally have social interactions. And as I found that I wasn't in need of the gate, I wasn't in need of the tether. That's when I started removing them and observing them. Did something change? If it had, I would have gone back. If I needed that management again, I would go back. But I think that's the biggest thing. And you're right. It's like everyone asks that question, when can I go to the next step? And the best advice I can give people is when your animals show you that they're ready. The whole process of integrating them was when they showed me that they were ready for that next step. So when Murdoch was no longer scared suspicious of the noises on the other side of that closed door when we first brought her home then we opened it up and had a gate and when she wasn't interested in him and he was like actually i'm feeling kind of interested in maybe getting more information from her and he started for me it was very clear he tried to climb the gate (laughs) (laughs) um then the only thing separating them was me holding a leash and then when 
they were starting to show that they were calm, cool, collected around each other. I dropped the leash and Freya could just drag it. And then when I felt that the dragged leash was not needing to be used at all, I took that off. And then again, slowly removing those management tools as I found them basically obsolete. Yeah. So I think that's really a nice way to think about it. It's like if you have a gate that's separating animals and they are constantly at the gate, <laughs> like very clearly wanting to per- go through it um, in yeah. some way for whatever reason, right? Then that gate is serving a very deliberate function. So if that gate was not there, then you would see very different behavior. Then you would have to keep that gate. Yeah, I have videos when Freya was a puppy of them on either sides of the gate together. And he was rolling back and forth on his back, not just on his back stiff. If a cat is on their back showing their belly stiff, that is not an invitation, <laughs> nor is it for a dog, frankly. Yeah. Um, but he was rolling back and forth and he was nice and loose and his tail was nice and loose, right? Not wagging, not thumping, not flicking. <laughs> and he was reaching through the barrier to try to get to her. And like, that was very nice. And that was a really great interaction. Thus why I filmed it. It was super cute. But <laughs> there was a lot of that happening. There was still a lot of novelty for both of them. And I didn't want to remove that barrier, like you said, until there was actually very little interest in each other. Mm-hmm. Like that barrier, if they're having those first social interactions, even if it's positive, that doesn't mean I just immediately remove the gate. The gate is there for a reason. And I'm glad that they're having a positive experience through it. But just because that first interaction is positive doesn't mean we just pull the gate away and we're like, well, I hope it works out. Yeah. I, I always tell people I want numbers just because I had one or two social encounters through that gate that were good does not give me the confidence to remove the gate. Let's wait till we get some more data points <laughs> showing us that there are positive social interactions happening. And yeah, definitely the novelty, if they're fixated on each other, that's not necessarily positive. Right. It's any kind of magnetization towards whatever the barrier is, whether it's positively valenced or negatively valenced. It's like, yeah, you, you want it to be, a negligible force as much as possible for a barrier to be. So first of all, those videos that you just mentioned, like I would like to get them and put them in the show notes. Um, so people can kind of see what the behaviors are that you're talking about. Cause I think that's where a lot of the nuance comes in. That is mm-hmm. difficult to describe on a podcast. Good job, Naomi, for having a totally audio podcast. That's based on animal behavior that you need to see. <laughs> but Like when we say the animals will tell us when they're ready, it's always really difficult to kind of quantify what that looks like for any individual pair of animals. Cause like it could look super like they're both ignoring each other, or it could look like one is genuinely a little bit interested and the other is interested for other reasons right like there's no like hard and fast rules of if you see this you're ready to move on do you have any thoughts on like general guidelines besides for like they're not sitting at the gate staring at each other right what kinds of body language we're looking at i mean i know i have my ideas and we can talk about that but do you have rules of thumb for your clients who are doing integrations yeah so i love that you point out that it does matter on the individual. And I think Murdoch's a great example of that because his body language and just his behavior in general is a little bit different than my experience with my other cats. But 
it's also before him, all of my cats were sighted and even they were different from each other. Mm -hmm. Um, so the two things I tell people is number one, observe your pets more. And what I mean by this is like, basically become the ethologist of your household. Mm -hmm. I want you to observe your cat when they're calm and happy and comfortable. What does their body language look like? Mm -hmm. What are their vocalizations sound like? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, same thing with your dog. Notice what their body looks like when they're nice and calm and comfortable. And usually at home in the house is the easiest. But then also notice what they look like in a novel environment. Notice what they look like maybe when they're stressed that Obviously, we don't want to put them in a stressful position, but one place you can observe this that for the vast majority of pets is stressful. What does your pet look like at the vet? That's usually a pretty good indication of at minimum what they look like when, you know, their arousal levels higher. Because most people, when we say stress, they they think like negative emotional valiance. Mm -hmm. um, technically, when we're talking about stress in animals, it's just like we are typically usually referring to physiological arousal. Mm -hmm. But yeah, start to learn what looks normal for your pet when they are relaxed versus maybe when they're a little bit stressed. And what I want to see is that those two animals that you're trying to integrate are showing that they are relaxed, mm -hmm. right? And for cats and dogs, both of them, a good rule of thumb is a loose body. Mm -hmm. If either of them is stiff and frozen, if their body is stiff, usually that's a sign that we need to take a step back because that is usually a sign that we're becoming stressed. But then there's also little nuances between dogs and cats. We talked a little bit about the tail stuff. Mm -hmm. um, with dogs, you'll see yawning. That's a displacement behavior. You might see them lip lick a lot. These are both two behaviors that are not abnormal, but out of context, they can be an indicator of stress. Mm -hmm. And then I will say that for the most part, as we already talked about, I want to see that we are not fixated and overly interested. And the biggest part of that is how easily they just disengage from each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really the last like puzzle piece for me feeling confident that this household was going to work with these two is that they could easily disengage from each other. Mm -hmm. um, I have this adorable video um, that I can send you, but I think it's also up on my TikTok. When Freya was a puppy, she was still pretty young and she was hanging out next to me. I had her on leash and she was chewing on a bully stick and he was just wandering around the room and checking stuff out. And at one point he kind of hops over to her. Um, so again, nice loose body language. He's a little hoppy and he like goes to bat her with his paw and she like looks up, obviously he can't see that, but right after he bats her paw, he just bounces away. Mm -hmm. And it almost looks like he's like, let's play. Eh, never mind, I'm bored. <laughs> like he bounces away and just gets distracted. And she looked up from her bully stick and was like, huh? And then went back to it. Neither of them were overly interested. Neither of them did their arousal levels spike and they mm -hmm. got really intense. They both disengaged really easily, even though Murdoch had instigated that social interaction. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to see. Can you call your dog away from your cat? Can your cat walk away from your dog? Can can they disengage? I think that's a big one to look for. Yeah, a big part of the programs that I do is actively reinforcing disengagement. So like this is a skill that you can teach your animals. Like if they're fixated at the beginning, that doesn't mean, oh God, everything is terrible and it's not going to work. Teaching basically that the other animal is irrelevant and or that disengagement is much more reinforcing than 
staring is how you make progress towards coexistence. Even if you do nothing, the theory is the animals will habituate to each other and will become less exciting and therefore will be able to disengage easier. But you can help that process along <laughs> um, yes. by actively reinforcing the disengagement. Like you mentioned that you did with Freya at the beginning, like as a puppy, if she looked at him and she looked away, good job, Mark treat, right? So that's a huge part of the setups that I do when I get dogs that are like, literally, you could wave a hand in front of their face yeah. and they're like, <laughs> nope. Um, yeah, you put the treat in front of their face and they just tilt their head right. and look around <laughs> your hand. <laughs> right. I mean, that can be really scary for people. And it's a little bit like it's a red flag, right? But it doesn't mean that you cannot work past it. You will be working on this for longer than if the dog yeah. very, very easily was like, oh, look, I'm just going to like casually glance for a few seconds and then walk away. But like we were talking about rules of thumb, I, I agree with all of yours. And I think that the question for me is, as I've been doing this for a while, trying to figure out like, how much can I codify what I mean by disengagement and easy yeah. disengagement? So like what you were saying is so beautiful about noticing which of your animals particular indications that they are relaxed and like something is not a big deal and some animals are extra starey and three seconds of staring is absolutely nothing for them they just happen to look at things for longer right with any animal when you're doing a training session with them each repetition is going to be longer or shorter you've got some really really quick animals you got some slower let's think animals right so same thing with how long it takes for them to disengage. You want to kind of know the baseline for that particular animal. But I've kind of found that two to three Mississippis yeah. <laughs> is like, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, coupled with the stiff or loose body language is a pretty good indicator of they're overly fixated and we need to help them versus waiting to see if they'll disengage on their own and then reinforcing that appropriately. So I'm just thinking of an example. Um, I have a cat client right now who likes to just sit and does the curl thing where all four paws are like basically within one inch square yep. of each other and then the tail is around and he'll just stare but like he's perfectly happy to do that right like <laughs> he's yeah he's relatively relaxed right it's it's freaky for the dog the dog is not relaxed but the cat is like i live in this one square inch for a while and so for him, like three seconds of looking, if he's in that position, that's not a rule of thumb I can use for him, right? But for another cat who doesn't do that normally, stopping their body for three seconds and staring, that would be an immediate, we need to redirect this. Those are, two, those are the two ends of the spectrum. In general, I say, okay, if you count one Mississippi to Mississippi and they are not looking like they're going to flick an ear and move their head, you're going to call them away and then reinforce the disengagement. Five repetitions of looking and they get stuck with three or four of them. You need to take a step back. I think that's a great explanation because like you said, it can depend on the animal. If your cat stares at your dog for 10 seconds, what usually happens after that? <laughs> if the answer is something you don't want, mm -hmm. like if it's not great, then let's make sure that if we see our cat staring for that long, that we know that we need to interrupt. We have to change the antecedents, change the environment, right? We need to help to make sure that we are setting them up for success. So you know that that's a red flag. But if your cat just stares at your dog all the time and just kind of watches them and nothing 
problematic happens, mm-hmm. then it's not a red flag for your cat. Um, it's actually a great example is Murdoch, if he walks up to Freya and starts sniffing her for more than two seconds, two or three seconds, I need to interrupt that because it means he's going to start trying to bite her and instigate something. Mm-hmm. But that's not a serial red flag. Cats and, and dogs, too. If your dog sniffs another dog for more than a couple seconds, that's not necessarily a red flag for all animals. Mm-hmm. Cats and dogs have really strong sm- senses of smell, especially dogs. It's their primary sense. It's where they get a lot of information. But I know from past experience <laughs> that if he is sniffing her for more than like two or three seconds, it means he's probably going to start stuff. So um, one thing that's essential is when you're starting these kinds of interactions, like actually having your animals have some kind of contact with each other, even through barriers is like noticing when I like to call them like noticing the big behaviors, like the ones you really yeah. don't want to be seeing. And they can go all the way up to like hissing, spitting, smacking, yeah. chasing all of that stuff. But even like the awkward thing like in your gut you feel like this could go either way right like (laughs) noticing what's happening right before that and seeing if there's a pattern so that like you can identify okay like yes there are some universal things we need to interrupt but also like this particular thing triggers this animal so we need to either we need to both manage that and also work on it to make it so that it's less of a trigger um i have a client right now who's dog and cat they're totally fine with each other honestly like they play and hang out with each other but for some reason when he is resting the dog is resting and she walks she the cat walks by him like calmly and confidently nothing happens but if she stops and like looks for more than two seconds and like assesses whether she's going to walk in the room or not he's like nope not today satan and he like (laughs) like out of a dead sleep and like yeah i don't know how he knows whether she's looking at him or not like i'm we're still trying to figure out honestly like this is one of those cases where i'm like hmm let's let this is a mystery let's try to figure it out um but he knows he knows that she's staring at him and so like that's a trigger for him so now we're like okay well if we see the cat come in the room and she stops we're gonna call her immediately yeah (laughs) right not because for any other cat dog combination like that is obviously a red flag that needs to be interrupted it's just like we happen to know from like you were saying from experience with them that that's a trigger and we need to work on that um so yes i guess the moral of the story is there are rules of thumb and yet um yep (laughs) like you said before we need more data um yeah be an observer of your animals you always need data write things down um blah blah all the things that like we just say as trainers in general like and that everyone hates doing by the way like yeah (laughs) right like we keep saying like let's take data look at all this stuff like it's hard it's hard to do that like in life um often so like one of the things that i try to do is like try to make the the data taking as easy as possible and non-obtrusive but like you know it's hard to remember these details um but they're so important it's so important it's just like it really is i think it's the most important part of owning a pet is obviously like it's the thing that i talk to all my clients about is it's like one of the first things i talk about regardless of what we're working on whether it be a 
serious behavior issue like reactivity or aggression, or if they're just coming to me for like puppy trading. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first things I talk about is observing your animal mm -hmm. and starting to get to know them because um, dogs are different than us. Cats are different than us. There are certainly some similarities between us. We're both sentient beings. We <laughs> do share some similar experiences in life, but um, especially a lot of uh, ways they communicate and a lot of social thing and social behaviors um, are different. And the best way to learn is to observe your pet and to really observe thoughtfully mm -hmm. um, because we tend to just assume. We tend to just... Um, we anthropomorphize. We we look at our animal's behavior through a human lens, mm -hmm. um, and we interpret it with a human lens. Um, and so I just tell people observe, and like you said, like just like even just write a few things down, mm -hmm. and just be objective. What did the behavior look like? What did it sound like? Mm -hmm. I think that as a trainer, I bet that's one of the things you say all the time. So tell me what it looked like, <laughs> because people are always like, well, so like my cat got mad and then tried to like attack my dog. And then my dog was getting really angry back. And you're like, well, so why don't you describe what that looks like to me? And I find that that's the easiest way to get objective mm -hmm. is like paint a picture. Mm -hmm. um, and the more you paint pictures, the more you might start to notice similarities and patterns, like you said, between certain situations that the picture always kind of looks the same. And then you learn if Murdoch is sniffing Freya's leg for more than three seconds to call Freya away because he's about to bite her. Right, <laughs> right. I want to go back to what you said in terms of what it means to be an observer of your animals, like to be the ethologist. Um, mm -hmm. Let's define that for people who don't know what an ethologist yes. is. <laughs> So an ethologist is someone who studies animal behavior, but very specifically, ethology is really interdisciplinary. So we're looking for behavior, not only from uh, the lens of what a lot of people, I think, especially when it comes to dog training, people think of learning theory, right? Positive reinforcement. We always hear that word. That's part of operant conditioning and the theory of how animals, not only dogs, but humans learn, but we're also looking at it from an evolutionary perspective. We're also looking from the perspective of genetics and development. And so ethology is the study of animal behavior and more of a, a modern take because there was a time when animal behavior there were kind of like two schools of of thought that either we had to look at behavior in a controlled environmental setting and that's where like a lot of applied behavior analysis comes from so things like operant conditioning when people think of skinner in a skinner box and species like rats in a lab and then there was a school of thought of looking at behavior in a natural setting and observing animals in the wild. And let's put quotes around that when we talk about dogs, right. <laughs> a wild natural environment for domestic dogs. Right. So that's what ethologists do is they look at animal behavior from all those lenses, but we do use a lot of observation. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the research that we do on animal behavior is observing. We sometimes measure things, but even when we do measure things, we are sometimes measuring the occurrence of specific behaviors. Yeah, so let's get nerdy a little bit. So we're talking yeah. <laughs> we're talking ethology, behavior, of the study of behavior, ethograms. This is one of my favorite things mm -hmm. in the world, which is literally a list of the possible behaviors that an animal is going to do. And you basically like tally how many times you see it happen and when <laughs> and where. Yep. Um, oh, so fun. But there are, uh, there are some ethograms existing out there that cover 
you know, common dog behaviors, common cat behaviors. If I remember correctly, there in the last like 10 years, I think someone created a ethogram for cat social behavior or cat play specifically. It's basically a description of different behaviors. And again, what they look like, sound like, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, if you and a lot of time in the research, what we do is we either live observe an animal or sometimes we're using video and you sit there with your little clipboard yep. and you just tally every time it happens. And there's different ways of measuring that. Sometimes you do it by a per time interval. Sometimes you do it. I can't remember. The, I'm so bad with uh, with terms, but you can either do continuous where you just watch and you mark every occurrence in the time it happens, or you can do like bouts of like every 30 seconds, I'm going to record what the animal's doing right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you just basically check off when it's happening, how often it's happening, what the dog is doing every 30 seconds or whatever your time interval is. Um, and people, pet, pet owners don't have to get that crazy, Mm-mm. but if there are, again, certain behaviors that you are interested in, and important for you to learn more about, say, if my dog is reactive Mm -hmm. and they engage in lunging and barking on the leash. I might start to keep track of when that happens. And I might also, again, if there are other variables I'm interested in seeing if there's a pattern with, Mm -hmm. I might also record when those occurrences happen, what else is happening in the environment, what happens right before. Yeah. I think... The value for clients, I think, is because they don't know what they're looking for necessarily, having a general list of all behaviors or many behaviors. And then we as consultants can be like circle, like these are the ones we're looking for because we know what we want them to be looking for, but they don't. Right. Like, okay, we see the big behaviors of Barky Lungy. What was happening right before? They don't know whether it's like oh, well, I was tying my shoe or we're looking for, did they stiffen, right? Did they, what were they looking at? All of that information, but that's a shorthand for us that it's not a a very clear for a non-behaviorally oriented human to know what they're looking for. So I think that there might be something here. Here's the universe of behaviors that we're looking, that we're looking at and here's what they look like. Um, Yeah. I mean, I always tell owners that if this was easy, intuitive, I'd be out of a job. Right. (laughs) Like it, it, the reason that this is hard for pet owners is that it's not easy and it's not intuitive and it's not knowledge that we're born having. And even as someone who grew up with a variety of animals, including dogs, including cats, when I decided to professionally study animal behavior and to start working with animals, I learned a lot more. And I learned a lot of things that I thought I knew before were wrong. Mm -hmm. So you're right that it's not intuitive for owners. That's why pet professionals exist. And you're right. I don't know. Maybe after this podcast, we'll have to talk about a project about uh, (laughs) dog and cat ethogram for pet owners. (laughs) That would be great. Maybe that's a resource that needs to exist. Maybe we should get on it. (laughs) (laughs) Copyright it all right now. No, don't take our, don't take our idea. Email if you're interested in joining. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always all about trying to do things a little bit differently, making something a little bit easier for the client because it is such a big thing. Like they don't necessarily want to become dog trainers. Um, They just want... (laughs) 
Um, Otherwise they would have. Right, like. right. And a lot of us, okay, a lot of us have that origin story, right? Of like, our dog was hard and we went to a trainer and we were like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Let, <laughs> let's do that forever. Um, I like teaching humans. Mm-hmm. Which is not all dog trainers love teaching humans, which is a whole nother podcast, but I'm always being like, how can I tweak my program to be easier for them? Because I do this for a living and I don't want to train all the time. I don't have time. Like, how do I, Yeah, you know, so just to make it as user-friendly as possible, um, using the tenets of behavioral science in a way that is accessible, blurdy blur, insert lots of (laughs) jargon. Anyway, is there anything else that you want to make sure that this is going to, this is such a valuable episode. I know everyone's going to love it. Is there anything that you want to have everyone keep in mind? I think we talked about really a lot of it. I think the only thing we didn't touch on um, that I think can be really important with multi-species households is uh, resource management. I think that one thing specifically, especially when we're working with um, integrating cats and dogs, make sure that both of your animals always have access to the resources they need and that they're not gonna block each other from it, right? So like when Freya was, you know, when we would put up gates in the house to separate her and Murdoch, I made sure that she was never between him and a resource he needed and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think the biggest thing we, the biggest things we already touched on. And I think the point that I just drive home is like, go at your animal's pace, Mm -hmm. like look at the animals in your house and go at their speed. I I've been there. I wanted Murdoch and Electra to be able to integrate so badly but I knew that going too fast was not going to help. Like that first interaction through the gate, I knew I was like, oh, this is, we're going to be have to go a lot slower. And also know that sometimes it won't work. If you're having trouble, get a professional <laughs> in there to help you, but just let your animals guide the process. That's the big one. Like you said, everyone wants to know when, when, when. And the answer is your animals will let you know. They will let you know when they're ready. Mm -hmm. They'll let you know when you can take the next step. And don't do it before then. Don't push. We humans are so impatient. (laughs) And especially with cats, the process is way slower than we typically want to wait. (laughs) Yeah. The animals will tell you when they're ready to move on or if they're ready to move on. Yes. Um, Yes. And again, I'm not a cat professional, but my part of my master's program does include cat behavior. There's a strong focus on dogs, but we do talk about cats. And so, you know, I, I hope maybe it helps people to hear that, like, it didn't work for us. Mm-hmm. We tried, we gave it a good old college try. It was <laughs> over a year of trying to, to integrate them. And it was really sad when it didn't work out, but that's okay. Like you said, they let us know it wasn't going to happen. That's okay. And also let's just briefly say that there are instances where rehoming might not be necessary that your dogs, your, I shouldn't say just dogs, but your pets can live separated in the home. Mm-hmm. We just had two cats that were not going to be happy living in a divided home mm-hmm. because there's only two humans in this house and they both wanted both of us all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a really good point. Like crate and rotate. Um, yep. Crate and rotate is, it has this like negative connotation. Oh, we're, we're going to have to crate and rotate forever. And Often it is very stressful. And yet there are some households, the way the house is set up, the way the animals, 
enjoy their resources, if the cat loves spending time with you, like primarily at night, sleeping and snuggling, and the dog is happy in a crate downstairs, like, great, it could work. And it could be relatively low stress and um, be totally fine. But that's a case by case basis. There's so many variables to think about. And if you have any questions, you know where to call us. That's a great segue to Sammy. If people want to talk to you or work with you or just pick your brain or whatever, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah. So one of the first places to start would be my website, which is sammyhide.com. Sammy is S-A-M-M-Y and Hyde is H-Y-D-E. From there, you can also go to my Instagram. I'm very active there. I do a lot of training and behavior content over there. It's Sammy J. Hyde. Sammy Hyde was taken. (laughs) If you would like to work with me, I work in the Boston area in Massachusetts. I work through a company called The Pet Republic. And so if you go to Power to the Pet, dot com. You can find a lot of information there about dog training classes, but we also do private consultations. And so you can always go there to book something if you are looking for some one-on-one training advice. Thank you so much, Sammy. This is wonderful. And I know everyone is going to love, love this episode. And I am so excited for everyone to hear it. I freaking loved talking with Sammy, and I'm really impressed that she was able to avoid making the almost universal mistake that we humans make with our animals, when we so desperately want them to be okay together. She didn't rush. Even when she was seeing consistent pro-social behavior, which is always so exciting. So, if you want to learn more about Sammy, head over to the episode show notes linked in the episode description. And my wonderful listeners, please help spread the word about the podcast and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Or tap the share button in your podcast app to send this episode or any others to the other cat and dog people in your life. And also, you can post about the episode on your social media. Just tag me at PraiseworthyPets so I can thank you. And that is all for this episode, you wonderful cat and dog people. Meet me back here in two weeks for more It's Training Cats and Dogs. This podcast is produced by Praiseworthy Pets.